Are you ready to free the body and free the soul? Join Dr. David, the cutting edge doc, as he guides us on today's journey. Here's Dr. David. Welcome, friends. Welcome to another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. I'm your host, Dr. David, the cutting edge doc. And here on Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, we do in-depth interviews with individuals that are doing cutting-edge work in the areas of healing, spirituality, and social transformation. I'm very excited about today's show. My guest is author and spiritual teacher and guide, Locke Kelly, who's just written a book called Shift into Freedom, The Science and Practice of Open-Hearted Awareness. I think you'll really enjoy today's interview. At the end, I mentioned to Locke that I felt like we were a couple of jazz musicians just kind of playing off each other. We go pretty deep into the uniqueness about Locke's approach to guiding people to greater freedom and greater awareness and greater effectiveness in life. And we touch on a lot of subtle aspects of spiritual teaching and the spiritual path. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this interview with Locke Kelly. Welcome, friends. Welcome to another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. I'm your host, Dr. David, the Cutting Edge Doc, and I'm very excited about today's show. I'm here with author and spiritual guide for many, Locke Kelly. And I'm going to bring Locke into the conversation in a minute, but I just want to make some opening remarks here. I found out about Locke and his work fairly recently, probably about six weeks ago. And there were several things that really struck me about Locke's work. One is that he got a um, beautiful endorsement from spiritual teacher Adyashanti. Uh, Adyashanti to me is one of the clearest human beings on the planet and one of the most artful and skillful spiritual guides that I know, and he doesn't give endorsements lightly. And uh, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Ajashanti as a person and as a teacher and in terms of his spiritual discernment. So that went a long way with me. And then uh, as I got to explore Locke and his work a little more fully, I began by listening to uh, an in-depth interview that Rick Archer did with Locke in Buddha and the gas pump. And uh, I was really struck by a couple of things that really resonated with me and my work and my work with students. Um, one was the heart-centered nature of the work. Another one is the uh, ability and respect and appreciation of the blending of radical non-dual awareness um, a sensitivity to human psychology and to human biology and human neurology. Uh, there's a maturity there and a power there in that kind of a synergy there, which um, I've endeavored to embody in my work for a long time, and I don't see it happening a lot. And so that is something that really struck me. And then another thing was... Uh, Locke's honesty about his own journey and his own process, and I could tell his sincere desire to be of service. And then there was a model that Locke presented that um, I really resonated with, both in terms of my own development 
and also in terms of my own work with students, what I'd sort of kind of come to on my own without the model, but uh, the model ring had a lot of truth for me. And uh, I'm going to ask Locke to expound on this in some depth in the interview. But just to give you a sneak preview, it's the model of waking up, waking in, and waking out. Uh, this this matches my experience uh, on a on a high level uh, abstraction very very much, and I look forward to getting into this. So I will, I reached out to Locke and. He graciously agreed to do another in-depth interview, and I'm looking forward to seeing where the conversation goes. I really don't have an agenda other than to be present and to be of service to Locke and his work and helping to get his work known by more people. So, Locke, welcome to Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. Thank you so much, David. It's great to be here with you. So let's begin where you'd like to begin. Just... Uh, just to let you know that a structure that often works well in these interviews, and I'm not attached to it, is very often the first maybe 20, 25 minutes, uh, we focused a lot on the personal journey of the person and then later on segue into the details of the work. But I'm not attached to that. So let's begin where you'd like to begin. Sure. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I could begin with... Uh a little bit of uh, my own beginning um, by saying that, uh, you know, I had a longing or a feeling of kind of intuitive connection to something that I had no idea what it was, some kind of uh, both a sensitivity to the suffering uh, in the world, but it also at the same time, some kind of uh, clarity that there was something deeper, something subtler, something pervasive. And what I read in, heard in different places uh, seemed close, but it never quite was exactly what I was feeling. It felt actually more, more palpable than kind of external descriptions of spiritual or even religious uh experiences, I felt like it was so close and so intimate that, um, that I, you know, I, I tried my own ways of, of finding a way to stay close to it. And then, um, as circumstance would have it, um, when I was in college, I had, uh, three, uh, deaths of close, close people very quickly. My father developed brain cancer. And we were with him for a year as he had one operation and started to get better and then had another uh, relapse and operation again and started to get better and then finally passed away right at my sophomore year. And then my grandmother had been living with us for a long time, passed away right after that. And then my best friend from the hockey team at college uh, was killed in a car accident. And so I was filled with this kind of grief and even met with the kind of uh, counselor from college and then uh, just couldn't find a way, tried to talk to friends who had not, most of whom had not been through this 
and just one evening walking up the hill to my dorm, um, I <clears throat> felt like, you know, there was a kind of talking to myself or hearing a voice of in my own mind that said, I don't know if you can take this pain much longer. And I kind of looked back to see where or what that was or opened to that. And what happened is there was an opening to an awareness as big as the sky, as big as the universe. And it kind of lifted this heavy weight of holding all this emotion within. So I started laughing and crying and feeling this kind of relief and release and, um, and all because I felt something greater than myself that was a support. Uh, but it wasn't a thing. It wasn't a person. It was kind of everything and nothing, um, but very intimate and palpable. And that uh, gave me this relief and helped me, you know, continue to walk, walk through the grief uh, in a kind of, you know, unfolding way that wasn't as uh, overwhelming and gave me something to say to myself, okay, whatever this is, I'm interested. I'm going to find out what, uh, what dimension of consciousness this is and how do I access it intentionally, not just wait for either a dark night to come to me or wait for it to unintentionally uh, through luck or grace uh, over time. How, how, how can I access this? It seems so, so much, so real and so much of who I am already and have been. So did that intensity and sincerity of your seeking did that take you pretty rapidly to a legitimate teacher or guide? Or did you find yourself going down a lot of dead and partial ends? Or what happened then? Yeah, so I, I, looked, I looked in books. I looked in methods like Zen. Uh, <clears throat> I talked to the, you know, the... the local, you know, the minister who was a faculty member who was a very good friend of mine who had done a lot of social justice work, uh, had even worked with Martin Luther King and found, you know, some very, very strong support in that, but not real clarity of what or how. Um, and so, you know, yeah, so I, so I began a, a search to look, uh, but I pretty quickly knew that, that some teachings and teachers would be helpful, but that ultimately I would have to explore <laughs> directly with this, which had showed up without a teacher or a teaching and was inherent within and among uh, other people. Sure. Uh, yeah. Although although I would say it's maybe one in five or 10,000 people who are able, human beings on planet Earth at this time that are able to embody really f 
full embodied realization without some contact with a legitimate teacher on the physical plane, but it, it is possible. Yes. Yeah. I, my feeling is it's less about the teacher than it is about the knowing how to access it and that it's closer to a developmental stage where you need mentors and you need helpers, but ultimately in terms of maturing, um, that I feel like awakening is the next natural stage of human development and <clears throat> is not reliant on uh, a guru. You know, that's something Adi Ashanti and I have in common. It wasn't because of a teacher, but it was a discovery and unfolding and a relationship within <clears throat> with, with that totality um, that was clearly within everyone else and then learning little ways of relating to that rather than relating to a teacher uh, and then being that and realizing the way it interacted with psychology and other dimensions of consciousness and relationship as well. You may be right. It may be that we're moving into a time where it's less and less uh, uh, imperative that our candle get lit up by being in the presence of a of an awake embodied human being. Yes. I think that's true. I think it's almost like the uh you know the the reformation in other uh religions it's a, it seems to be more of a democratic process. It's less of a hierarchical uh and that even you know getting as I continued my journey uh meet some of the great masters i i went to get a graduate degree in uh in new york in both uh, social work and a master in divinity at uh, union theological and columbia university and i went on a fellowship to sri lanka india and nepal and i met you know wonderful teachers there uh including one who was a Dzogchen master toko urgen Rinpoche who gave me pointing out instructions. But even then, uh, it was clear that, as he said, he was pointing out which was in, that which is inherent within all of us already, that he wasn't transmitting it. He was pointing to that which is equally available as each of us, in each of us. But I think it's more than a pointing. I think it's a living demonstration yeah. of possibility as well as a conceptual pointing. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a seeing of it living out in front of you, absolutely. Uh, but, I mean, how many, you know, as you say, how many millions of people have been at the feet of seeing uh, people who may have been realized and if they don't discover the way to become that rather than either worship that or um, <clears throat> just bathe in some uh, experience during, during a teaching or resonance, um, <clears throat> then that's, that seems to be the key is can you look within and discover it with some support, certainly some traditions you know, Buddha was not a guru, you know, in the Theravada tradition, was not a guru-oriented 
you know, begin and persevere uh, and <clears throat> seek within yourself. So that um, there are many traditions of non-guru, guru, uh, look within, look, you know, look to someone who's a support. Um, but the ultimate, the it comes to the the resonance with yourself, with the self, which is the bigger than either someone else or yourself. Absolutely. And yeah. that, that, that idea of a resonance phenomena, um, or another way of saying it would be one candle lighting yeah. and lighting another candle that, um, that really resonates with me in my experience. Mm -hmm. And I like the, uh, I think it comes out of the Buddhist uh, tradition, mm -hmm. the idea of uh, kind of a a trinity support system of the the Buddha or the teacher and the Dharma or yes. the, or the teaching and the Sangha, the community of, of fellow truth students. I think there's something to be said for that that trinity. Yes, I like that. That sounds that resonates with me. One of the things that I would like to get into more with you in this conversation yeah because i think we both have a, a a respect for this is the uh we're both really like practical visionaries yes like we're 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 radical but we're, <laughs> we're but we're into acts it's all about access yes it's all about <laughs> access and so we're dealing with building a bridge of, <clears throat> of knowingness to human beings that have that have physical bodies and biologies and nervous systems and psychologies. And so if we're going to be a bridge builder, we have to know something about both sides of the bridge, so to speak, mm -hmm. both ends of the bridge. And, um, you know, what I love about the work that I do and my sense about the work that you do is there's a radical context for the work, but at the same time, there's a compassionate, humble respect mm -hmm. for the, uh, for the nature of human psychology and human biology. Yes, absolutely. There's so many people, teachers, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine. So I'm going to get on my soapbox <laughs> for a minute. Okay. One pet peeve I have are teachers who, who make statements of representations of radical truth, yep. but then don't provide any a bridge or any access route. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and then when the student isn't able to make that leap, they make the student wrong. Yeah. And to me, that's just a total ego-based move that uh, that just doesn't do anybody any good. But on the other hand, uh, there are all of these teachings that um, or approaches to growth and human development that because they don't acknowledge the um, the radical infinite nature of, of of beingness, don't have the power to build the bridge from the other side. Right, <clears throat> that's and, right. And uh, so, with that sort of as a as a as a frame, maybe you could go into this idea that captured me so much. Maybe you could go in depth into this idea and this process. And approach it from different angles yeah. of, uh, that I love so much of waking up, waking in, waking out. Yes, sure. Yeah, this is fun. And it's a lot of what I wrote about in in this book that I spent many years 
trying to put the invisible into words, you know, trying to put the unnameable into pointers and try to clarify some of these um, paradoxes that if they're spoken about in paradoxes can seemingly be at least um, some of the extremes can be um, gone beyond and we can begin to, as you say, access this immediately. So the waking up is, um, you know, on one side, like you said, there's some people who have had direct experience of the uh, ultimate level of reality of pure awareness. <clears throat> and it's often hard to describe how to get there. And there's some division sometimes even that uh, of uh, not as if that's the only reality and that the relative reality gets uh, put down or not included. So that's, that's one uh, definition of non-duality, uh, which is often talked about, is as if there's a dualistic mind here, and then when you leave dualistic living, you're in non-duality. But actually, I call that not duality, because it's kind of a new duality of just pure awareness or ultimate reality, and relative reality is then talked about as if it's an illusion or not important, whereas in Buddhism and uh, other traditions, there's um, non-duality means two truths. It means dis discovery of ultimate reality, and ultimate reality is then the ground of relative reality. And so the, our bodies, our minds, our psychology is all included in all arising naturally in this precious human birth. So that's that's one sense of um, where we're going. We're going we're not going toward escaping and transcendence, uh, which sometimes the waking up it feels like, oh, I've gone beyond my problems. Let me just remain in this meditative state or in this, transcendent witness. And that to me is uh, often an important step or stage, but not the end goal. And then just to say that the other, um, you know, other uh, way of proceeding is kind of using a gradual path where many people are taught to do very simple meditations um, such as one-pointed meditation or <clears throat> beginning kind of mindfulness, but are never initiated into the next natural stages of uh, mindfulness. So one of the things I teach in this book and the audio is, um, is deliberate mindfulness, which is kind of like the mindfulness that many people know. And then the next stage is called effortless mindfulness. And then the third stage is called heart mindfulness. And the effortless mindfulness is the discovery of this pure awareness uh, and discovering that it's the ground and being able to then uh, observe and include uh, our body and emotions from there. So the waking up 
is two has two stages. It's waking up from identification with the thinker um, and orienting by thinking. So a thought based way of knowing or an ego identified sense of self is the primary way most of us walk around in the world. And so the awake waking up is waking up from that. But then the first stage of that is often described as not knowing and non-ego. And that's kind of like a gap, but you can get caught in that gap in waking up so that you either are able to, aren't able to do anything and people become couch potatoes or uh, the not knowing you become kind of dumb. One of my teachers said a lot of people he saw in the U.S. are doing stupid meditation, which is kind of just a blissful, relaxed state. Uh, and you can't function from there, nor can you, are you really fully awake? Because the second part of waking up is waking uh, into an awake awareness that's the alternative operating system to thought-based knowing. It's awareness-based knowing. And you immediately feel this awareness that has already been awake and aware within you that shows up at certain times. And then when you discover that's the foundation of who you are, the ground of your being, that awareness can wake in to include your body and emotions and your whole psychology, but with such a greater amount of support and fluidity and boundless joy. And I just did a seminar in Boston area and people were saying, well, my emotions are still here. It's just that they're really not a problem now. I was so tied to them and I kept defending against them and trying to fix them and that that was making me more neurotic than anything else. And so this was, this is a way when you wake in is you're actually including from another foundation, everything that you originally felt like you were waking up from or trying to get away from. Uh, now you're back home as a human being, but with a new, a new ground. Uh, and then just to say briefly that then you discover um, your heart mind rather than your head mind. So you start to actually feel like your um, the vast awareness is contacting your body and your intelligence, your local intelligence of your personality, which is fine, um, but you're operating from a kind of intuitive um sense of processing which some people call the flow state in psychology where you're able to access all the information in your um in your memory sometimes i say people you you live at home in your heart and you use wi-fi to the files in your head so that you don't have to go up and live in your office of your mind and that's pretty much waking in and then waking out is you discover that you start to see from your heart's eye view 
the that this same awakeness is the same in everyone else the same ignorance and imperfection in you is the same in everyone else and that but the foundation is this kind of love and um awakeness that we all are which is kind of that uh bowing that uh people from india when they say namaste that they're recognizing the unity the interconnection the divine spark that's the same 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 in everyone and there's ability to wake out to creativity and uh relatedness and so you can start to um feel at home in the world so my little summary <laughs> that i write in the book is that waking up uh you lose the fear of death waking in you lose the fear of life and waking out you lose the fear of love say more about the last one yeah so the last one it's it's so important that it's built on the first two because much of you know literature in psychology and positive literature of changing your mind and positive thinking and even religious literature and religious practices are try from your ego to be more loving and there's very you know good uh you know attitudinal change that can be done from there there's good uh behavioral changes that by trying to be loving by trying to you know practice imagining loving kindness and having positive thoughts but it's really just a small bandwidth of consciousness and it's nothing like the actual discovery of awareness based knowing and awareness embodied and heart mind that actually experiences unconditional love by its nature it's like right. you're not doing it <laughs> you're you you instead of trying to be more accepting if you drop into this which is this method which is maybe the more most important thing in this book is the method of unhooking and shifting immediately when you shift immediately into this dimension of open hearted awareness it it is the dimension is already accepting and loving and that's who you are and that's where you see from and that's where you can operate from well i love that model it it resonates very deeply with my own experience and my experience of other people that have successfully traveled that journey and i think um and as you said i'm sure your methodologies are very important but yeah. even even for teachers that don't necessarily or students that don't necessarily resonate with your particular methodology mm -hmm. i would suggest that yes. this overarching model yes. has tremendous value for whatever path someone is on I totally agree. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I have a question yeah. that um, might be very helpful for me okay. as a teacher and for my students because, you know, I teach a little differently than you do. I have different methods. And one of the things that is the area that my students tend to have the hardest time with is 
once they start becoming aware of the wide variety and quality of thoughts and motivations yeah. th that they're coming from, yeah. at that point, they have a very important choice to make. Mm -hmm. They can they can begin to relate to those things and to themselves in a compassionate way mm -hmm. or or they can use what they've just become aware of to judge themselves and beat themselves up more yes and that to me is you know i mean obviously you first have to become aware of something but assuming yes. assuming you've become aware of something that choice about whether to compassionately embrace your awareness or whether to fight it or deny it or justify it, that to me is like the supreme free will choice that we have. And so many of my students, uh, it's taken some of them years and many of them months to really get that they have a choice in that choice and to really get the power of that choice and to get kind of their hands upon the levers and dials that allow them to consistently choose compassionate allowing once they've become aware of something. Yes. And I'm wondering if there's a particular aspect of your method that you could share with me Mm -hmm. that I could share with my students that might uh, compress that learning time? Yes, sure. Um, well, yeah, I'll, I'll go back a little a little to the model, and I'll just kind of say that, um, you know, my experience is that what you're describing is what I call the mindfulness move, which is um, the first move probably – of the of the next level of of you know adult human development which is not only the ability to train our uh conceptual thinking to a tremendous degree but the ability to step back from our conceptual thinking and observe it uh first in a neutral way and then second in a compassionate way so that pulling back stepping back dropping back, uh, turning over, letting go, that first move of detaching, disidentifying uh, is the first move. And then the second move is finding the witnessing awareness that's not thought-based to, that is the observer. Now, the, that first move is still what I call subtle mind. So it's not yet pure awareness. So you can do, uh, like John Kabat-Zinn describes mindfulness as a non-judgmental witness of moment-to-moment -moment thoughts. So the non-judgmental witness is that first not negative, non-judging, uh, so that move is very important. Then you can be loving kindness or compassion, which are qualities of mindfulness that are developed. Uh, and that's really helpful. That's another half step. But then <laughs> you're still in the dualistic mind. So you're still in the subtle mind. And it isn't until you actually leave that cloud 
of your head <laughs> because most people still feel like they're watching from above, you know, about a foot above, an inch above, uh, <clears throat> as if the observer's in this local uh, subtle mind. Uh, but it's the, it's the leaving, it's literally stepping out of the cloud and realizing you're the sky. And then realizing the sky is intelligent without your help. And then the sky is included within the cloud. And then when the sky comes back to the cloud, it has an including, welcoming, embracing, unconditional loving. So it starts with kind of a, like a sweet, like curiosity love, like, wow, look at those crazy thoughts going on in your, my head. And then there's a little more uh, compassion. And my feeling is it's only going that next two full steps that you can find a stable, compassionate, um, detached and yet inclusive relationship with thinking as a function rather than the center of the operating system. Absolutely. Just in terms of accessibility and yeah. methodology, you know, for me, what I observe in my students is that it really doesn't land until they are willing to be vulnerable enough that it drops down into the heart. Yes. And, and I call it the, Oh my God moment. Okay. The, Oh my God moment where they realize. <clears throat> in other words, they're not believing me anymore as right. the teacher. Yes. But they're seeing for themselves and they're seeing the impact of their unconsciousness or of their choices on themselves and on the people they care about and they they are 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 at a heart level and a visceral yeah. level they're moved by what they felt safe enough to be vulnerable enough to to see and feel for themselves yeah and i've seen that happen enough times now over the decades that i've been teaching that i know that for most people that's a critical step yeah. and what I'm, what I'm aware of is that in my own way of teaching, um, that kind of like happens when it happens. Okay. And I'm wondering if there's any distinctions that I'm missing yeah. that can foster the environment to increase the likelihood of that happening sooner rather than later. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in, in my experience and kind of the way I've been teaching for for the last 10 years, what I've emphasized and discovered as one way to do that is, you know, to, is that awareness is to first have the assumption that there is an alternative possible to being the thinker. You know, I think therefore I am is not the I am. So think the thinker is not the I am, but there's an I am and that thinking is a function just like uh, smelling, tasting. In Buddhism, thinking is actually considered the sixth sense. Right. So the five senses and thinking. So returning thinking, thinking to its natural state, having a great deal of respect for it, but 
literally, so then the method is literally unhooking awareness from thought and having it in the case that we're just talking, you just talked about, literally feel like it unhooks from thought and people could even do this right now, kind of steps back and then awareness is what knows directly in into your chin, awareness knows directly in your throat, awareness drops and knows directly within your body, the aliveness and awareness, and then awareness drops and knows directly from within your open heart space, your heart mind, without looking up to thought and without looking down from thought, awareness has unhooked, known directly from within, and then dropped and now knows from is both the subject and the object within your heart space. And it knows in a new way. It knows in a non-conceptual way without referring to thought. And it just starts to get to know itself um, and know this new way of seeing and being. That's great. You know, that's, yeah. uh, I like that. Um, <laughs> it, a lot of the ways that I've gone about attempting to foster that breaking that breakthrough for people has been as they become more mindful of thoughts i point yeah. out to the fact that they must not be their thoughts because they are perceiving thought yes and that, that's a good start it is and then another one is i have people become aware of the stories that they're mm -hmm. living and the stories that are living them and and do the same thing i point out well you know you, you've been defining yourself by your story, but in truth, you must not be your story because you you have awareness now of the story as a story, so you must be more than the story. Mm -hmm. And so these are very good... Yes. These are very good mind starting points. Yes. But I like, I like the blending of that with the use of it's almost like you're deconstructing body images almost by your technique of uh, what you just led us through there you know mm -hmm. unconsciously the ego's correlated with not yeah. only these these identities but these body images yes it's and pretty, yeah it's almost like you're deconstructing that through that exercise and i like i like that that approach as well and i think it would blend well together yes yeah um, yeah, I would, you know, just to kind of to say that you can be aware of thoughts from thought, then that's called that in academic psychology, that's called um, self-awareness, interestingly. So thought can be aware of thought, then you can be aware of thought from mindful witness, then you can be aware of thought from big sky uh, spacious awareness. And each of those is actually another radical shift. So a lot of people do mindfulness. They're aware of their thoughts actually from their thoughts. You can be aware. Oh, I'm aware. I'm thinking, Oh yeah, there I go again. I'm thinking again. <laughs> and, yeah. and so e each layer, and it's really until 
the awareness is aware of the awareness. This is the kind of radical shift of consciousness and the new kind of move. Like some people say, well, what's the next thing after mindfulness? And in some ways, that first mindful move is to be aware of your thinking. Then where this kind of uh, method begins is when awareness actually turns back and looks through the meditator and discovers an awareness that's aware of all three other levels of mindfulness without doing anything, that it's already been there. It's an inherent, naturally free unity consciousness that is takes you know people off the street 80 to 90 percent of people off the street within 10 minutes to an hour can experience this that's amazing you know one one technique that i developed probably not the only person that developed it but and if people will do it and stay with it it's very powerful but it might be maybe it's too uh radical for a lot of people is i have people uh sit down about two and a half to three feet across from a potted plant or a pl- or a potted flower. Yeah. And I want to expose them to the distinction between beingness and thinking. And mm-hmm. so this is the exercise. Okay. They give themselves the instruction to think about the flower. Yeah. Then there's about a 15 second pause. Mm-hmm. And then they say, okay, or good, or something that completes that cycle. And then I have them give themselves the next instruction, which is be with the flower. Yeah. And then there's about 15 seconds of silence. And they just go back and forth between 15 seconds of thinking about the flower and 15 seconds of being being with the flower. Mm -hmm. And if people will do that consistently over a period of a few weeks, that does generate a certain kind of opening and i'm wondering what your sense of where that opening fits into your model yeah i i think it's the um it's it is breaking down uh it's going from from everyday mind or thought base to kind of uh subtle body so that you're in you've moved your awareness from th- thinking and you've come back to your senses. So you're just seeing when you're just seeing, then you start to open, uh, to, you know, another felt sense of non-separation. Um, it's kind of a bl- the bliss body experience of, uh, uh, it could take you all the way to open hearted awareness. That's the thing. If you if you unhook from your mind and come into your heart, you could go into subtle body, or you could go into your emotional heart, or you go into your heart chakra, or you could go into open-hearted awareness. Um, but it at least takes you out of the mind and into uh, you know just seeing, um, just hearing, just being, without reliance on thinking it shows you the difference yeah and that's that's critical yeah that's right so 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 if someone comes to you approaches you as 
you know, wanting to be, they want you to be their guide. And uh, would you kind of take them along a, a, a structured journey similar to the journey that you take your reader through in your new book, Shift into Freedom, The Science and Practice of Open-Hearted Awareness? Yes, because the, you know, the, the, the glimpse practices is what I call them because they're kind of practices of glimpsing your true nature immediately uh, are really, I have a number of doors for different kind of learning uh, styles for different uh, types of people, psychological types. So it's not really about like one method or one way. It's really kind of looking at this, you know, model of consciousness um, and awareness, and then going through the principles of these types of consciousness that aren't even on the the map of Western psychology, and taking them, uh, deconstructing the the what I call the mini me or the ego identification is the first. Uh, method and then uh, discovering this awake awareness as the primary alternative because unless we discover the alternative we can have a lot of you know nice meditative experiences or we can even see uh, we're not our thoughts but the more important thing is after seeing you're not your thoughts then how do you operate you've got to see an experience the new operating system. And that's where a lot of people don't uh, stabilize and don't awaken uh, is because they haven't discovered um, there is a system that awakening discovers that then has to be rewired uh, to your operating, to your normal way of talking and walking and thinking so that most of my practices are with your eyes open, small glimpses many times during the day uh, so that you can immediately go to typing an email app from your awake uh, open-hearted awareness and then you lose it and it's no big surprise. You just re-recognize and return and then you pick up the phone and talk to someone or you talk to someone face-to-face and then you start to uh, reorganize your whole neuronal network uh, to support um, living from awakening. And so awakening becomes about how we live, and it's really the absence of a certain kind of suffering um, that's created by this uh, operating from this small mini-me sense of self. Right. And what I call that part of the journey or that aspect of the journey, uh, I call it essential personhood. Okay. The, the, what you would call the, the, the integration of this awareness with the new human operating system Yeah. or the embodiment. And um, that to me is a very fascinating part of the work because uh it's really where the rubber meets the road. And also it has implications for those of us that are in the healing arts who deal directly with supporting the physical and etheric bodies. Uh, it provides a whole new context for uh, what that's all about. Yes, definitely. 
and that's very exciting <clears> to me. And uh, and I think for psychologists, it would probably do the same thing. It would it would provide a very empowering context for re uh, recontextualizing human psychology. Absolutely, yeah. And there's a certain uh, you know from this kind of more radical non-dual awakening uh, perspective, it, it's very, it, you know, very able to accept psychology as it's as an important role in life and see which parts psychology is helpful, which part uh, awakening, which kind of suffering. So, you know, to say a little about that, the, the, the suffering that awakening is talking about is a kind of perpetual dissatisfaction that's caused by what I feel is the uh, pa- a pattern of, of thought looping around thought and joining with ego function that happens developmentally um, at about two and a half when we start to develop um, what's called self-awareness, which is the ability to think about thinking. And that creates a think, thinking about thinking and creates a sense of self that's a thinker that says, oh, I, oh, I'm Johnny and I'm, uh, I'm, I better not say what I'm thinking. So it's very important uh, developmental stage, but we've we've kind of it's become the highest level of development, uh, and we've developed thinking so much that this little uh, self awareness, this thinking about thinking, it actually ends up feeling like it's a separate entity in our heads, looking out of our eyes. And it literally co-ops our body's boundary program um, because it thinks it's an I, and it feels like it's a physical entity with a boundary in our head. And the main problem is we can't see it because people are actually listening through this part right now as they're listening to me describe it. So it can't see itself. And then this little me, because it thinks it's a physical creature, um, it's craving uh, satisfaction for itself. It's perpetually dissatisfied because there's nothing for it to get. And there's nothing for, no, there's actually no threat to who it is because it's not an entity. It's just a thought pattern. And it, but it keeps trying to protect itself and reform itself, and it actually piggybacks on other physical dissatisfaction, and it creates addictions with any pleasurable feeling to our physical body, because it's looking for something to gratify. And so when that pattern relaxes, an entire dimension of suffering and dissatisfaction is relieved uh, immediately if you can find the alternative operating system so you can walk and talk without relying on this uh, on this mini me right and you still have physical issues you still have yes. psycho- you still have psychodynamic issues you still have social issues but now somehow the meaning 
of it all shifts. Yes, that's right. And and I think important to say that the the me that is liberated, the self that is gone, or returns actually to its natural conditions, is not the personality. It's not really even the story. You still have what's called your narrative self. You still have your stories. Some people say you need to get rid of your story. It's really the story maker, and it's not getting rid of your thoughts. It's the thinker, and it's not your personality uh, at all. All those are normal aspects of being a human being. So people get scared that, oh, my God, I'm going to become a robot or I'm going to not have a person. And even people who have initial awakenings uh, say things like, I'm not John anymore. The person formerly known as John does not exist. There's nobody here. And I'm and really, they're just kind of yeah mistaken that um, the one they thought they were that was never them is gone. But John is still here. John is. That's what I mean by essential personhood. Yes, yes, yeah. good. Yeah. Um, so um, I may be asking you to simplify something to a degree that it's not possible. And if I am, <laughs> just tell me that. Okay. But if you were to say, what are the key distinctions in your methodology as, as opposed to other people's methodology that seems to produce uh, in linear time, uh, a shortening, a compression of the of the process of uh, this next developmental stage. What would you say are one or more key distinctions in your methodology that are that are so powerful? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it's uh, it, it's <clears throat> it's recognizing some of the things. Uh, two of the things that we talked about, particularly that there's a a model, there's a model, you know, of consciousness that's fairly simple that can be moved through. Um, then the next thing that we were talking about is that once you leave the mini me, the ego identified thinker, that you want to immediately find the solution. You don't want to hang out in the deconstruction or the gap. You want to, you want to you immediately go from from the problem to the solution quickly and then you then you want to do the gradual uh, you know rewiring after that rather than going slowly or getting stuck in the emptiness of emptiness in between and just resting hoping it'll unfold you almost want to and then the main thing is something i haven't talked about which is you know, kind of has to be experienced, but it's what I call local awareness. So local awareness is the focusing aspect of the new awareness-based knowing. And basically it it's what I, when I, when we went through the exercise of let awareness unhook from thought and then feel down through your jaw and then know your throat directly from within, that that is the source of mind. The non-conceptual awareness is kind of a palpable um, focusing bubble almost of awareness that can get big or small, but it is where you're knowing from. And it's actually the non-conceptual um, 
knowing that can unhook or disidentify and discover awareness as a field and as a arising uh, energy system of a person. So that, that you know, it, it's what, you know, people are talking about when they say inquiry, when they say look within or turn your awareness around or have the mind know the mind or uh, discover, you know, your your true nature. What is it that's discovering it? Because your thoughts can't know it. Your five senses can't know it. The one, the ego identity that begins the journey can't get there. So the the real thing that makes it quick is kind of reverse engineering the process from awake awareness, realizing you can focus with this small, in a small area with local awareness, is to feel, to get a feel for this local awareness, which can unhook from thought, come to any of the other senses, and then open to pure awareness. And then from pure awareness, can come back and include the body, uh, your body just as it is and your personality while remaining open. And then it can go out and look at the flower or the potted plant in front of you and really be with it without thinking. Or it can go out and connect to another person in front of you. You know, I think that's very powerful because inquiry has been one of my main uh, vehicles, both for uh, my own journey and for teaching. And uh, most people don't take inquiry deep enough to really, uh, for to have it really deliver. Yes. And part of that is, um, part of that is a confusion about the idea that inquiry is something you do uh, primarily with your mind. Exactly. Where there's just a very small aspect of inquiry that has to do with the mind. Yep. And then another part of it is the ambivalence about really wanting to know truth and really being ready to know truth and go deep. Right. Um, and, you know, it, it, it is coming to me as you're talking that if we as teachers want to use inquiry as a teaching methodology... Um, the type of exercise that you took us through briefly earlier to introduce that to the student early on so that they have a direct experience of the fact that although there is a very small part of inquiry that involves the mind, that it is actually a full being function. Yes. That right. could be very, very useful. Yes. That's right. Yeah. So only a awareness. If you look with thought to thought and say, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? You're not likely unless you exhaust yourself in kind of a koan method. Yeah, <laughs> that that can work. The koan makes some sense because you're actually realizing <laughs> that thought can't get, you know, what is the sound of one hand clapping? So you're inquiring and, you know, on purpose to to, to exhaust the thinking system. But still then, even then, you have to not just remain in not knowing, but you have to discover the not knowing that knows. Yes. And and what I do is I encourage my students to consciously make it all right with themselves when they have confusion and not knowing arising. Yeah. 
to allow it to not make up a story that it shouldn't be that way or that right. it's a problem yes. or that there's something wrong. That's good. Yeah. And that if you just hang out with that, with that not knowing, I tell my students that it's actually a, a, a promising sign because it shows you that you're getting to the limitation of your old logic system. That's right. And you can actually get to the point where, um, where you can actually, without faking it, you can get to the point where you have enough wisdom that you can actually experience gratitude when that starts coming up. Yeah, because you but realize that, there's some kind of, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, there's some kind of disorientation before there's a reorientation. But that takes a certain faith and consciousness on the part of the student to get to that point. Yes, if it, you know that. That's a, you know, so my method actually kind of skips over, <laughs> skips right through that <laughs> because the awareness, once it unhooks from knowing, it immediately finds the not knowing and then it finds the not knowing that knows and that knowing is immediately knowing without having to go back to the old knowing and it doesn't have doubt because it actually has a kind of comfortable confidence in that it's like oh my god i'm alert and clear and simple and i'm not thinking i'm not going to thought meaning thoughts can happen there's not that's like whether they're happening or not doesn't mean anything i i people at that time call them mental sensations you know automa right. automatic thoughts just come and go that's okay because the new knowing is immediately online and people start to familiarize themselves with that uh, and then the potential to begin to speak from here and and uh, relate um, starts to actually that that practice immediately starts to rewire so are you saying and I'm going to use the word bypass not yeah. in a, not no. in a bad way but in a good way yeah so are you saying that your methodology and your experience, that it can bypass a lot of this part of the path for people that tends to be very gut-wrenching, where, um, where they come to grips with the extent to which the, the ego thought system is using them? Yes, that's right. So, so what happens is usually it's kind of fast and funny, because what happens is yeah, that that is the tradition. The traditional way is more the gradual, you know, gradual way and the gradual deconstruction. Um, you know, the Zen, the Zen metaphor, muddy water, let's stand becomes clear. Yeah. So while the mud is settling, it's, you know, it's a grueling process. And, the and, you know, they're finding now that a lot of people are doing these, uh, you know, meditation, 10 day retreats and things are deconstructing without having a new system and they're being flooded by their unconscious. So they're having an immediate dark night experience, but no uh, ego defenses, no ego, no ego defenses and no new system. So my way of doing it is, is called direct recognition and gradual unfolding. So the direct recognition and realization is going right to the awareness based knowing and then the awareness-based knowing hears the doubting mind go wait a minute you can't do this this is not going to work on monday but 
you like see it as like, oh, there it is, you know, uh-huh. and then the emotions are have so much space that they start to thaw out and kind of like somebody who said, I, I don't think I can do this because I just I'm always so emotional. I'm just on guard. I'm then, And then she just shifted into this and just went like, oh, I feel so peaceful. I said, well, where are your emotions? She said, they're right here. She said, they're the same, but they're just not big. They're not in charge, and I'm not controlling them. I'm, there's, so, so let me, at the risk yeah. of being redundant, no, no, it's such no, a please. key point. Yeah. Let me ask you again, even if you end up repeating sure. yourself. So what is the key distinction in your methodology from your perspective that allows something like that to happen as opposed to... Uh, taking a long time and many repeated lessons of kind yes. of getting hit over the head before yeah. <clears throat> before you develop the willingness and the capacity to simply let your thoughts and feelings be. Yes. So here, so I would say it this way. So I say the first is the premise, which, you know, many people have heard from the greatest <laughs> wisdom literature is your true nature is already here. Your Buddha nature is inherent within you. This sense of awakeness is not something that's created or developed. It is inherent within you. And right, but, it, that's, but that idea is not new. Right. No, but this is what I'm saying. But, but what I'm saying is, because it's not new, then let's do it. In other words, okay, so then what are we spending all this time? If it's already here, let's... Let's not only just slowly. So the gradual path is often talked about in Buddhism. They talk about three, three methods, the renunciation method, right? Which is you're working on ethics and renunciation. You're trying to hold, replace negative thoughts with positive thoughts, not try to not to be so grasping, try to be more accepting. Then the second method is the transformation of emotion so that's a little more psychological clearing starting to develop mindfulness witnessing thoughts that you're you realize who you're not and you start clearing out the the problem areas of what of the knots that have been created and then the third method is the direct recognition method and what you do is you directly realize that what is here it has no problem is so vast, so loving, and so much bigger than any emotions, thoughts, or knots that you have, that if you can shift there and remain there for one second to one minute to one hour for that time, there everything is managed by the unborn, as they say in Zen. Everything, you have a new operating system, it's so ridiculously vast and loving that you 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 start to get reorganized. Um, so the method that I have is this local awareness, which unhooks from the current everyday mind. It steps through not knowing and doubting mind into the vast pure awareness, which knows itself. And then the pure awareness, as soon as the pure awareness knows itself as the new operating system, I come right back into the include 
realize, okay, it's not only formless, but it's also form. It's none other than form. So now it includes everything. And now it's the, now you've dropped, now you're operating from your heart and the space. And, um, and, th and then you just start including everything, but it's the view and the perspective is so vastly different that you are actually awakened for, you're an awake being for that moment or two or three or four or five that you start to go, oh my God, this, this is, there's no problem here now. Nothing to get rid of and nothing to get outside. Um, and so that, um, that discovery starts to familiarize you with, with that potential. And then you can learn to, re and then the, the next series is how do you learn to return? Okay. So I think I'm getting enough clarity about, okay. about your, your journey now that I think I can ask okay. some questions Good. that are going to take it even deeper. Great. Is that okay? Absolutely. Yeah, let's go for it. I'm <laughs> are, you, are you having fun? Absolutely. I love okay. it. <laughs> Me too. So, so I want to, I want to take you back. I don't know if okay. you had direct experience of this or whether yeah. you know people, but I want to go back to my experience w uh, with myself and other people who uh, were using LSD back in the seventies for 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 uh not using it frivolously frivolously yeah. but using it to learn yes and um many people that i know of uh during an lsd experience had that kind of open awareness that you're talking about yep but most of them when they would come down from the trip their unfinished result unresolved uh object relations and ego issues would reconstitute themselves and the experience would devolve into a memory. Right. And yet for some of us who had whatever, who had, who somehow by the grace of God had been stabilized prior to that in some, some uh, more permanent open awareness, were able to, get more sustained value mm -hmm. from those experiences. So, um, so when you were describing this, oh, when you're in this open awareness place, everything is fine, there's no problem. I thought about the LSD people yeah. who, who had that awareness in that moment, but then there was something about the reconstitution and reconstruction of the unresolved ego attachments right. and issues that obfuscated the capacity right. for them to function from that level and even uh, stay, be vulnerable enough to stay open to the possibility of that level. Yes. And so what is it about your method that doesn't uh, take people down that same path? Yeah. So, I mean, I, th I think the uh, LSD experience is kind of like a dramatic deconstruction and you know, dependent, it's, it's dramatic and it's, it's got other, other dimensions of, uh, altered state. Uh, and in some ways this discovery of awake awareness is actually the natural state. And people say, oh, now I see the other was the altered state. My ego was the altered state. This is so clean 
and so clear. So it's not trippy. The awareness is not trippy at all. Uh, so it has some qualities of, of a trip in that it's boundless and you have some insights, but it's not, you're not flooded with other uh, dimensions of um, your unconscious and you are operating with your um, object relation. You start to like include your object relations while you're there rather than having one without and one with. Um, so it's kind of an integration of, uh, from a new way of seeing that's cleaner and more vast. I know that Ram Das said that, uh, uh, drugs are a window and that awakening is a door. So it's kind of like you're, you're living there. So when someone, you know, when someone discovers, you know, and, and I don't even use a lot of this language when I... <laughs> people walk in off the street. I just say, I say, here, let's just try this. Just drop here, open this. Now you report. And people are saying vastness, openness, emptiness, fullness, embodiment, love, joy, bliss, peace. And now then I ask them this, when they've unhooked and dropped and opened and included, which is kind of one of my simple little methods, unhook, drop, open, be aware, you know, aware from awareness and then include and then abide and know and, and then open. Um, what happens is um, people are able to, um, to feel very simple, very, very clear, uh, as if the most ultimate level of infinite empty awakeness and the most uh, mundane level of physical objects in the world. And in between all the ignorance around object relations in the now disappears. And then the knots of old beliefs and conditioning and trauma begin to um, begin to to kind of intelligently melt and detox and are seen um, over time. Maybe in our next conversation, because I know we're coming up to okay. the end of our time, we could get into more detail about the wise management of that yeah. latter part of the process. I think that's something that isn't, that could be talked about more in 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 spiritual psycho-spiritual circles yes absolutely the unfolding and the yeah my last chapter interestingly you know a lot of people who write about psychology and spirituality the first chapter is early chapters are psychology and the last is spirituality whereas i start with direct recognition and description of awake awareness and then the last chapter is about from awakening how do you deal with the subpersonalities and parts that try to sit in the seat of the self and, yes. and act like they're you? And another thing <laughs> I'd like to talk about, if you're willing to have a second yes. conversation, is I'd like to talk about the uh, the implications of this for for social transformation yeah, as well. Absolutely, because that's that's a huge topic. Yeah, and that's you know where this is going, and it's something that in many ways. I have my opinions, but a, a lot, and I, and I, it's live, you know, it's, it's 
that's the way my life has unfolded. Uh, but I also don't, I like to give people the basic tools and then let it unfold. And mostly it unfolds into compassionate action. I just see it happen that way rather than telling people to do it. You know, it's no, no, no. It's I, I, yeah. I, I don't, I don't mean what are you telling people to yeah. do? Okay. Good. No, I mean, what do you feel are the, yeah. the, the natural, what's the natural unfolding um, the natural unfolding of this awareness in a uh, socioeconomic uh, uh, terrestrial context has some powerful implications. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think would make a really great part of that second conversation. Yes, absolutely. Um, I've really enjoyed this. <laughs> I, I feel like a couple of jazz musicians here. Uh, yes. If, but I want to give you the last word. Why don't you take the last five minutes or so and just share whatever you'd like our listeners to know in closing and then make sure they have uh, information about how they can learn more about you and your work and access your book. And then we'll, we'll call it a day. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm, um, you know, yeah. I mean, I hope uh, you who are listening are, have enjoyed so far our, our jazz <laughs> discussion <laughs> of, uh, spirituality and you know my feeling is that the reason i do this is for for service to serve people because i've had the great fortune of having been uh, dipped in the ocean of awareness i feel like my all i'm doing is saying the water's great come on in uh and then providing the simplest tools that have um kind of a non-hierarchical, non-guru, non-should, uh, you know, way to give tools uh, to people. Um, and at the same time, to really encourage and say that I feel from my experience and those of my students that awakening is possible in this lifetime and that awakening is not a magical you know, cure of all, you know, human ills in that we still are going to live our human life of ups and downs and good days and bad days. But there's a certain kind of suffering that piggybacks on other uh, suffering that when it goes, it reveals our natural basic goodness and love, unconditional love and natural acceptance and a really a, a sense of okayness and well-being that goes to the feeling of what I call sometimes non-shame, which means that who you are is okay, that there's nothing wrong, that all is well, that that feeling of being who you are just releases um, all these knots of defensiveness and worry and projection and fear and anxiety and depression on a certain level that uh, opens you up to enjoy the now and then to be look out and be in relationship and serve, you know, serve and be compassionate to others and give generously just naturally unfolds. Um, and so this way of, uh, directly recognizing what's already here 
you know, is one way to do it. And um, that's kind of what I've been exploring, this inquiry-based kind of method that breaks down exactly how to do inquiry and gives you tools and different doorways. Um, so, yeah, so because of that, I wrote a book called Shift into Freedom, the Science and Practice of Open-Hearted Awareness. So it has some support from neuroscience and from academic psychology and from psychotherapy and <clears throat> from the wisdom traditions and teachings and methods that I've kind of adapted from travels and meetings with uh, teachers. And um, it's uh, meant to be easy and accessible. And the, the CD is really the essence of this whole thing. The CD is not an audio book or the audio download, whichever you like, uh, but it's actually the series of short guided uh, practices from three minutes to eight minutes long that are built in a series and that people have already like one person said I gave it to my grandmother who doesn't know what I'm talking about in terms of this stuff but she's listening to it for two weeks and she just says I'm so happy I'm just so happy everything I've just put my burden down so uh, so it's it's kind of a good a good thing maybe even to start with um, and to, you know, share with people who may not be as into the reading and detail of, uh, of what this is all about or how this all fits together. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I hope you'll take a listen and, and read if you're interested and, uh, Love to see people come to some events, or I'll do some online uh, courses as well. Locke, thanks so much. It's been a joy, and we'll have contact information in the show notes, and I'll make sure that uh, Brianna, my assistant, gets in touch with you before this is published so that uh, you can coordinate any kind of sharing you'd like with your tribe with the release to the public. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to do another discussion with you. This has been a nice, uh, a nice, easy uh, back and forth. That's great. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you came into the middle of this somehow, this is Dr. David, the Cutting Edge Doc, and this is the podcast Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. And in this particular edition, I've been speaking with Locke Kelly. He's an author and a spiritual guide who's who has developed some really wonderful. Uh, methodologies and access routes and models that make uh, spiritual realization more accessible for people in a shorter period of time. So it's really been a joy and a privilege. And thank you again, Locke. And we'll close with love and peace. Bye for now. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. To access all episodes, including show notes, go to CuttingEdgeDoc.com. That's CuttingEdgeDoc.com. Lastly, if you love today's show, you can support Dr. David, his work, and the show by going over to iTunes and giving a five-star rating and a heartfelt comment. Thank you again for joining us today and for your commitment to freeing the body, freeing the soul.